From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. And today, we are so excited to have actor, writer, and director Rada Blank. Her movie is called The 40-Year-Old Version. It's a beautifully crafted, semi-autobiographical film about a struggling playwright on the verge of turning 40 who decides to become a rapper. It's also a love letter to New York City and its struggling, unsung Black creatives. The fact that other people who aren't Black or share those particular cultural touch points with me are into the film, maybe through the lens of hip-hop or what have you, is a blessing. But really, I just was trying to tell my story and connect it with people who haven't seen themselves centered in a film like this. Mark's conversation with Rada is coming up in just a couple minutes. COVID-19 is moving fast, and so are LA Times journalists. Our job is to separate fact from fiction because you also help spread the truth when you are informed. Because in a society where we all have to stand six feet apart, the LA Times is our connection. It's become our community. We're going to be here giving you information to offer a little bit of clarity. Stay safe, be informed, take care of one another. We'll get through this. Subscribe at latimes.com. Before we get to Mark's chat with Rada Blank, let's turn things over to our critic, Glenn, for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. So one movie that Oscar voters have been talking to me about a lot recently is One Night in Miami, the excellent drama written by Kemp Powers, who you might remember co-wrote Soul, and it's directed by Regina King, who you might remember won an Emmy not, not too long ago for her work in Watchmen. The film imagines the conversation that took place between Malcolm X, singer Sam Cooke, football star Jim Brown, and boxer Cassius Clay, who you probably know better as Muhammad Ali, shortly after Clay won the heavyweight boxing title in 1964. The Oscars love historical dramas. I mean, that's that's a thing. Every year there's a lot of nominations, a lot of Oscars going to these types of movies. Academy members just eat them up with a spoon. And I mean, even if you, to borrow a lyric from the great Sam Cooke, don't know much about history. I mean, you're going to love this movie because it provides such a fine introduction to these men. It just has such a bone deep understanding of what they're about, what they believed. And Beliefs that still resonate and percolate very powerfully today. The movie recently premiered on Amazon Prime. I'd recommend it for any number of reasons. But if you're paying attention to the awards season this year, you should definitely watch it because One Night in Miami is going to figure very prominently all through the season. Thanks, Glenn. Man, I want to hear more of your singing. And now, Mark, let's get to your conversation with Rada Blank. Rada, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm happy to be here. 
And now you recently received the Sundance Institute's Vanguard Award, and that's on top of you won the directing prize at the Sundance Film Festival earlier in the year. What has this past year been like for you? What has the response to the movie meant to you? Well, as far as Sundance is concerned, I kind of look at them as kind of my bookends of light on an otherwise crappy 2020 You know, we started in Sundance, where I was really just happy to share the film with its first audience. Little did I know that those would be the few (laughs) live audiences we'd get this year. But it was a wonderful start to the year. And then um, having to make these shifts, no one shoots a black and white 35 millimeter film so that it would simply be end up on a tablet or a phone. But Netflix was very supportive in creating different opportunities for me to connect the film with its audience. We had some drive-ins, which were great, at different festivals. And the reception has been really cool. You know, like, people are connecting with the film on a personal level, um, whether it's about the loss or frustrations around being an artist, um, having to contend with gatekeepers, um, the response has been great in places that I wasn't expecting, like in the UK and in Brazil, they've really um, taken ownership or or pulling the the film in close, I should say. And so, I don't know, this was just such a weird year for our country. Um, To get the Vanguard was a way to kind of end it with like a really bright spot. So it's been interesting. (laughs) And now I want to be sure to ask you, was there a moment for you in creating the movie, you know, when you kind of realized that the story of the movie being so rooted in your own sort of experiences, was there a moment when you realized that that was the story? That I, I would imagine that it would be hard to kind of have that moment where you realize that after everything you've been through, including, you know, failure and struggle, that your story, everything you had been through, that was actually going to be the thing that gets you over, that was going to lead to your your ultimate success? My version of success was just getting it out and being pleased with it. But the journey of that character was always the story of the 40-year-old version. And it grew out of, you know, a kind of that cycle of life, imitating art, imitating life. It grew out of the adversity and the rejection I had experienced for many years as an artist, um, it was a response to my getting fired off of a film and feeling like, you know, I had um, made a few strides in theater and, and people had said they thought my work was was strong, my writing was strong, but I wasn't seeing a dividend outside of the one play that I had produced in Harlem called Seed, which, you know, Harlem audiences, Black audiences especially, really, really surrounded that play with love, you know, aside from that, I wasn't having the success I thought I'd have as a writer. And um, after getting fired, it was creating the 40 version as a web series was my response to that adversity. So, you know, me using myself as commentary on, you know, the relationship between Black artists and white gatekeepers, that was always the story. I was not expecting it to resonate with so many people. I really was just trying to kind of expel or exercise the demon of my frustration as an artist while celebrating the legacy of my parents and other Black artists, other unsung Black artists in the city. You know, I really wasn't expecting for us to make the splash that we did at 
Sundance to get acquired by Netflix, um, which would turn out to be so advantageous in terms of building an audience, building a global audience. You know, we did show for a week in a limited run um, in certain theaters, but for the most part, the audience has come through the streaming platform. And uh, it means that people in different parts of the world get to participate in this um, in the story. And um, I don't know, it's been a real blessing. I, but I wasn't at all expecting more success beyond like just getting it out, like getting it out and maybe hopefully creating an audience uh, from those who had been following me as a playwright. You know, I didn't expect this response. I mean, the thing that I find so inspiring both in the movie and in your own story is exactly the fact that it took you a while. This is the 40-year-old version of what success might look like. And it's been funny to me that a few times I've seen interviews where people want to use the phrase overnight success and you always kind of push back on that simply because it literally misses the point. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not a late bloomer. I, I feel like everyone else is late. I've been doing this for quite some time. I have not been directing many films. You know, I have a couple of shorts here and there, a music video or two um, for my own, you know, alter ego, Rodimus Prime or whatever. But like in terms of telling story, I've been doing this for decades. So when people call me a late bloomer, you know, my career as a director is happening now. And I think people are taking me more seriously as a director, but I've always wanted to tell story. It took me a little bit of time to get up the guts to call myself a filmmaker because I think like a lot of people, I was intimidated by what it took, you know, in terms of the resources and the skill set. But I think if anything with this generation um, has proven is like, you know, there's a lot to just creating the resources and building the audience yourself. You know, I always talk about Issa Rae as a model. She created this web series and really harvested this audience online. And that audience became the currency that would get her into HBO, you know. And so I, um, I at the time, I was very intimidated, but I think whether it is using your iPhone on a on a, a mini tripod or whatever and uploading stuff to um YouTube. I think, you know, the days of not having resources are are shifting, you know. And now in creating the story of 40-year-old version, you play a character in the movie called Rada Blank. And there is a, a history of, you know, I'm thinking of say like Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld, people playing these characters with kind of their names. But for you, were you concerned at all or intimidated by the fact that like people would maybe confuse the character with you? Like what made you kind of want to have that close connection of playing this character named after you? Well, you know, for me, I just wanted to tell this story and use my experience as an avatar for what I feel like many people have gone through. It just was never a question about whether or not I would do it. I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, the advent of doing something like that is you're inviting people into your life. I would say 75% of the film or 70% of the film is me. We're shooting in my apartment. Those are my parents. That is my brother. Some of the people are my actual friends playing a version of themselves. But yeah, I don't know. I just, there just, to me, was no other way to do it. And I was doing it in the spirit of the Larry Davids and the Jerry Seinfelds and the, the Lena Dunhams who had 
done it in their version in their time. And so I just was like, okay, I believe Cheryl Dunye with Watermelon Woman, you know, was a send up of her own life, but kind of fictionalized. I might be the only other Black woman who's done it in film, but it has been done. And um, now it was just about kind of corralling all these pieces to tell my version of it, my version of a New York story. But it is a little daunting that people may feel the film means that they know me or that they have some kind of ownership over my story. But I really was just trying to be a representative of a Black artist, you know? Um, And so, you know, I invented some things so that it would feel like a narrative and it would be, you know, it would have these particular plot points. I've never won a 30 under 30 awards, but I've created it as a device, something that would haunt her. I have not yet choked a theater producer, but I mean, it's all very possible. Um, I just feel like I had to create things that would create some distance between me and the character. And so the character could have her own journey, you know, and not be bogged down by the facts of my life, so to speak. And then you mentioned how a lot of the story in the movie involves, you know, Rada, the character coming up against these white gatekeepers in the theater world. What was it that made you want to include that sort of like as a big part of the story engine? I mean, it, maybe it's an obvious question, but like, is that something you've come up against a lot? It's my story. It's my story. And it also is about me trying to make sense of why Black audiences would come and see my work and say they love it. But there still was like a cue. There was like a line, <laughs> you know, so to speak, uh, me waiting to have a moment at, you know, the bigger stages in New York. I just didn't understand it. Like when I did this particular play called Seed, you know, everyone was like, oh, this is going to Broadway. This is the one. This is the, the breakthrough. After, you know, me having written a number of plays that was supposed to be the, it never happened. And I wasn't quite sure why. Um, the film is my exploration of the why. Like there was a scene that was in the film or in the script that I never shot, but it was like a montage of me sitting down with numerous artistic directors or literary managers at theaters. And it's like just like a, uh, you know, a sequence of shots where they keep saying like, oh my God, we love this play. What else you got? This is amazing. You have something else I could read? And so I feel like the, what theater has said to me is that, yeah, you're talented, but we don't, we don't know that we can take a chance on you. And so the whole idea of not taking a chance on me, I think I relegated to the plays don't create an easy entryway for white audiences or the silver haired patrons. You know, I don't pander to the things that I think they find romantic, like slavery or black pain or just plays that are take place in an antiquated sometime in the past or war-torn Africa. You know, like, I'm just being real. But my experience is that telling contemporary Black plays where Black people are centered and the storytelling doesn't play up to the limited idea of Blackness that these silver-haired patrons have, it just meant there wasn't really a space for me. And that those who broke through, who did have that voice, those were like an anomaly. You know, the Dominique Morisseau's or... There were a couple of playwrights who did have breakthroughs, but not many of us. And so this was just me trying to understand how that could happen. But now in telling that aspect of the story, did you feel like you were sort of sharing feelings of recognition with a Black audience? Or were you trying to like explain this to a white audience? Were you thinking about who the audience of the movie was going to be? I never want to explain 
anything to anybody. I do want to reflect my culture back to itself. And that's why I say I use myself as an avatar. So maybe the on the on just surface level, I'm speaking to Black women and maybe I'm speaking to Black women of a certain age or women of a certain age or I'm speaking to a Black woman artist of a certain age who happens to live in New York. And so using those elements of myself to reflect a particular experience and hoping that somebody sees themselves in it. You know, I always talk about many of the, two of the artists who inspired me to make this film is uh, the work of Carrie Mae Weems and Carrie James Marshall. I call them both the mirror. And there's also Jamel Shabazz. Like they're either painters or photographers. Roy Takarava is another one who are capturing authentic Black life and Black beauty. And so I wanted in some way to do that. And the fact that other people who aren't Black or share those particular cultural touch points with me are into the film, maybe through the lens of hip hop or what have you, is a blessing. But really, I just was trying to tell my story and connect it with people who haven't seen themselves centered in a film like this or a classic New York film. And, you know, I mean, I get hit up all the time by people saying, like, my mom died last year and I'm trying to find a a space in myself to still make art, you know, and watching your film, you know, help me kind of reconcile or not not reconcile, but just connect to that experience. I I talk about um, Atlanta, like being a show that kind of, whew, it just changed my molecules, you know, like watching it. And there's an episode where Paperboy literally gets lost in the proverbial forest, right? And the forest kind of represents his mourning of his mother. I had never, as a person who was still confronting this loss, I'd never seen that kind of grief articulated in story like that. And I just remember reaching out to Brian, who plays Paperboy, who's a friend of mine, just saying like, thank you so much, like, for creating something that I could see my own grief and story in. And so I'm hoping that the 40-year-old version is that for some people, but I don't want to explain anything. I just want to make something. And, you know, if there's a certain group of people that surround the film and find something in the film, then that's, that's beautiful. You know your smart, funny friends who always seem to have the best celebrity gossip? I'm talking about the ones who always know what you should be watching or reading or listening to. But what if you could pick their brains every week? Pop Chat from CBC is a brand new podcast that does exactly that and feels like spending time with your best friends. You can join in the weekly group chat every Wednesday and subscribe for free on the CBC Listen app or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I know for myself, I, I found some of my favorite scenes in the movie were the ones set in the rehearsal room when they're sort of going over the play and you're seeing the character of Rada, you know, especially in her sort of conversations with this kind of hapless white director who's been assigned to work on her play, played by the mighty Walker White. That Oh, Walker's amazing. <laughs> that, that those scenes to me, the way that they grappled with that sort of cultural misunderstanding and miscommunication, I know for my 
itself, I felt a lot of recognition in that in those scenes, and that it really mm. ex- explained to me a lot of, I think, frankly, cultural mistakes that I, and misunderstandings that I've made for myself. So I really appreciated like seeing those so directly confronted in those scenes. Thank you. Yeah. It, again, it's it's not my intention to explain, but to express. And you know what has been very cathartic is like. I've not had the chance to have conversations with people in theater about my experience. I mean, when I say people, I mean people who are on the other side of the gate, who green light and make the decisions. I haven't been able to express my frustrations. And a lot of times I think it's because for many artists, especially unsung, underground or what have you, there's a price to pay for for honesty. You know, like you will get isolated, ostracized, demonized. You know, you'll maybe be looked upon as a troublemaker or you're not grateful. And so there hasn't been a lot of space to confront it. And so I'm just fortunate that all of these artists got behind me in doing it. I mean, even in Reed Bernie (laughs) playing Jay Whitman, you know, he talked to me about how cathartic it was because of his own frustration as an actor, you know, and being overlooked for something. And and it, it all comes down to one person making this particular decision. When for you, it's like, it's your life's blood. It's not just the way you support yourself as an actor financially, but it's how you walk through the world. And this one person decides that, you're not right for something. You know what I mean? So in that respect, Reed Birdie, yeah, he's a white male and he's playing this white gatekeeper, but he was able to fill the character from <laughs> the the toes up with his own experience in confronting gatekeepers who make decisions, you know. And now the, the movie has elements to it of comedy, of drama, even romance. I've heard you say that you really prefer to not think of it as a comedy. So I'm kind of interested, like for you, how do you categorize the movie? What do you think of it as? It's a film. I mean, I would hope people would think it was cinema too, because, you know, myself, Eric Bronco, Rob Wilson, my my editor, you know, my uh, Guy Rute, my music supervisor, like we were all really invested in creating a mood for the film. And, um, you know, giving this New York tale that involves people from theater world and hip hop world, the Godard treatment, you know what I mean? Um, I was raised by a cinephile. And so I just wanted to create something that felt like a classic New York cinema. The things that are funny about it, I really, in my gut, was never trying to be funny. I just wanted to be honest. You know, like, my knees crack. That shit is real. And sometimes it's so loud, like, small children and, and, and house pets turn with fear. Like, what was that? You know, like, but this is not me trying to be funny. I'm just trying to reflect my experience as a person who's getting older in a society that doesn't always value women as they age. You know, we, we've been put out to pasture when, you know, we still are making self-discoveries. You know, and so my goal, like when I look at someone like Christopher Guest, someone I admire, I look at his mockumentaries, which I did study in in creating this film. It's like I never feel he or his ensemble are trying to be funny. I think that they are married to a particular experience and they are like dogged and determined to relay this person's truth. You know, so... The first time I realized the script might be 
funny or or considered a comedy was when um, Franklin Leonard from The Blacklist, he's a friend of mine, you know, he was the first person to read the script outside of my very small and insular group of writing friends. And he said he was on a plane and he was laughing so loud that people were like, really? Like, can I take a nap here? Nothing is that funny. And he told me that and I said, oh shit, okay, maybe this is a comedy, you know, but I come from doing stand-up comedy for six years. And in that space, I get what it is to tell a joke and what that means. And in film, I was just trying to step away from that and really just live earnestly in the uh, character's journey. And you'd mentioned earlier the decision to shoot the film in black and white on 35 millimeter film. And that, I mean, that's ambitious for any filmmaker, especially nowadays for a first-time film, you know, feature filmmaker like yourself. What was the inspiration for wanting to do that, for wanting to have the movie seem like cinema, as much of a movie as it really is? Well, like I said, I was raised by a cinephile on movies like Some Like It Hot, Repulsion, Night of the Hunter, Lost Weekend, The Apartment. So black and white visually is not very foreign to me. I grew up watching The Twilight Zone. So it's very easy for me to see stories in that aesthetic. But I also felt like, you know, one of the compliments... um, people have given the film, especially those who've moved out of New York, is like, oh my God, it feels like my New York. It feels like a New York that I knew and loved. And so black and white kind of seals it in a time capsule. You know, I think it lends itself to the classicness of it. And then, you know, um, again, like when I look at the work of Roy DeCarava, his ability to capture all of these different shades of gray around the Black aesthetic in black and white photographs. You know, like there was just a beauty to it. And I wanted to give that to the people in this film, namely those from hip hop culture in that, you know, the culture is often reflected in like a a very oversaturated tone. And the Black and white of it all just brings it down to a level of vulnerability and humanity we don't often see. And so I, I definitely like... I looked at those painters, I looked at those artisans, um, but I also looked at hip hop videos from the 90s where people like Dickable Planets and Tribe Called Quest were telling stories through a nuanced black and white lens. You know, um, The Far Side and She Keeps On Passing Me By is a beautiful 16 millimeter film. You know, we call it a music video, but it's film. And so I knew characters in this setting, in this city, in black and white would make it more cinematic. And I want to be sure to ask about your rap persona, Rodimus Prime, who, as I understand it, sort of predates the story of the movie. How did you kind of come to, you know, marry the the character of Rodimus Prime with the character of Rod Blank in the movie? Well, you know, I, again, I'm, I've always been a performer and I felt like a lot of the roles I have put on, whether it was a actor or a comedian. It never really felt like I could fully be myself in those roles. I was trying to get commercial work as an actor for a very long time, and um, that wasn't exactly fruitful. But Rodimus Prime, the live show, is I think the first time where all of these different parts of myself came together. And the show grew out of like me having this idea to create this web series about a playwright who becomes a rapper. And two weeks before we were going to shoot the first two episodes that we'd use to crowdfund the back eight episodes, my mom passed away. And um, I really didn't want to do anything related to art. 
She was my biggest cheerleader. We share a birthday and I just could not. It's like, what's the point? And so I had stepped away and I just gave myself a chance to grieve. A few months later, a friend had reached out and said, hey, you know, we'd like to, uh, we know you do this solo performance work. Nobody knew about Rodimus Prime at the time. And he was like saying, could you come in and do excerpts of this solo play that you've created? And at the time, I just didn't want to be a character. You know, I just wanted to do something that felt close to home. You know, when I was planning to make a web series, I had written all these songs and created all of these beats on GarageBand just by myself. And the idea was that you'd watch the 10 episodes, which we never shot, but you'd watch the 10 episodes and afterwards be able to download this free mixtape. And so when he called and said, would you perform? I was like, well, maybe I could do the Rodimus Prime stuff. And so I just took all of the music that was a companion to the web series and I just performed it in a live show. And it was just a great catharsis. I mean, the beautiful thing about the moment is like, I got to release (laughs) some of my grief around losing my mother, but also kind of confront this thing around turning 40. And um, that's where I feel like the first audience for Rodimus Prime began was in like small dives in New York, you know, Jack, Pianos, uh, performed all over the place, Joe's Pub. And um, when I would do that for a couple of years, and then when I finally came back to look at the web series, it just didn't feel, it just felt too pedestrian for the story I was trying to tell. So I, that's when I decided to do it as a um, film. But I had been performing as Rodimus Prime for a couple of years before I then decided to, okay, this is a feature film, you know? And now a few times in the movie, and I think it's always tied to Rodimus, you break the fourth wall. Like you look directly at the camera, at the audience. Rodimus looks into the camera. Yep, that's Rodimus. Talk a little bit about that. It's it's another one of the ways in which the movie, there's just something so bold and so free about the way that you've made the movie. What made you want to do that? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think fourth wall is a really interesting device. It really says like, I'm aware that you're watching me, you know? And I think in that moment, Rodimus is trying to say like, I'm here. Y'all see me, right? Like, Rada don't see me, but y'all do. And so, you know, when she, when she's in the car with D and she looks to the, <laughs> she looks to the, the audience, you know, I think where Rada would second guess and be afraid, Rada must just kind of, and then that's true. It's a metaphor, but it really is true for what I think has happened in my life. Like I, me personally, I've always struggled with my weight. It's always been an issue. It isn't one for Rodimus. Like she don't give a shit. She got her um, fat girl sex anthems, you know, um, where I might be a little self-conscious about, oh God, what are people going to think of me dating this younger man? Rodimus don't care. Like she, she don't call herself a cougar. She calls herself a panther and she's on the prowl, you know? So like, it is not a complete figment, you know, it is not a complete creation. It definitely is a part of me, but one that both myself and the character has kind of had to lean on to pull her out of either her grief or her fear or her, her own limitations around her success. So, yeah, it's very deliberate to look into camera. I know Rodimus's climactic rap in the movie is Find Your Own Voice, and it's even became the marketing tagline for the movie. In some ways, is that... Does that feel to you like the mission statement of the movie? Is that something, is that what you would hope people would take away from the film? Yeah, you know, at one point, I remember saying this at Sundance when we were all just baby director fellows and, you know, each director got up and and started to try to talk about their film. And 
I wasn't trying to make this a catchphrase, but I realized like it was one where I said, you know, the gist of the film is like you don't age out of your passion, that you can find a fire or your passion at any age and explore that passion at any age. But I think find your own voice (laughs) says it even better that no matter who you are, where you're from, that that is there's power there and there's a way to kind of move through grief, uh, you know, the isms of the world by tapping back into yourself, which is what the character does. And that's why the mirrors, there's so many mirrors. Again, Carrie Mae Weems inspired a lot of the mirrors that show up in the film. You know, this idea of like, just look back into yourself. That's where all of the answers lie. And people are always asking me, oh, you know, young writers or new writers are like, Would you, do you mind mentoring me? And I always say to them, like, no one is going to know what you want and need better than yourself. And so, yeah, that's what Find Your Own Voice is about. It's like just giving yourself that moment of reflection so you can figure out what it is that you need. And now just the last thing I want to ask you is, as we've been talking to people recently, we're all, you know, in some version of stuck at home. So everybody really is watching a lot of movies and shows. What is some things that have really meant something to you recently? What are some things that you've watched that you would want to recommend to other people? Oh, God. Okay. So I revisited High Maintenance because at one point I wanted to do a New York show and I was just like, I don't know if I need to because it was such a, God, it was just such an authentic version of a New York that I know. So it's High Maintenance. I went to revisit that. I loved Queen's Gambit. I just you know, there's this thing called the Bechtel test about where women characters show up in relation to male characters and the woman's journey. And it passed with flying colors. Like there was a story about this young woman and this calling on her life, you know, one that she didn't necessarily want, but needed to, you know, it, it kind of determined, it saved her from, from the circumstances. And then Lovers Rock, my God, I, listen, I, whoo. That was so, that impacted me so deeply. I, I didn't know I needed to see something about that. It made me, even though I'm not from East London, um, I do have West Indian roots. Um, and for a time in the 80s and 90s, as a young person, I would go to all of these rockers and roots and reggae parties. And it just really made me nostalgic for that time. Like even in terms of like the dance of romance, like literally like, what we would do to kind of engage each other. Whereas now everybody's like in their phone, you know, we didn't have those devices then. We just had the music and the dub. And so Lovers Rock was such a, ooh, it really warmed my heart. I was literally in tears watching it because I was so moved by it. So, you know, like, it's so funny. I just have to say about content, you know, when the pandemic first happened, um, I was really struggling because we were having this moment with the film But because of the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I just felt that storytelling felt very insignificant in the moment. And, you know, we're also trying to live through this pandemic. And so I just was questioning my purpose. And it was through watching like such great freaking content that I was like, oh my God, this is a necessary bomb. Like we need story to either escape or to assuage or to comfort or to inspire. And so it it really did 
helped to refortify my identity as a storyteller. I don't take it for granted. I know it's a very special place and it's an opportunity for people to have, you know, conversations. I'm hoping 40-year-old version is a part of the discussion around racism, the institution of racism in the institution of, of New York theater, um, but just also healing. You know, I I feel reinvigorated by all of these other stories. There's so much good content out there that I feel like, you know, maybe people will take storytelling seriously as a uh, platform to invoke change, to inspire, but to heal people. Because it's what we need the most right now is some healing. So I'm very honored to be seen and uh, validated as a storyteller in these times. Mark, I love what Rada said about using storytelling as a way to sort of comfort, inspire, and start a conversation about difficult issues like institutional racism. And, you know, given the current state of the country with the pandemic, with the attack on the Capitol, the impeachment, I could go on and on and on. I I really liked what she had to say because that feeling of, does any of this matter? I feel like This past year, I've had that conversation a lot with my editor of I'm struggling to focus or I'm struggling to get my creative juices flowing because it just feels like in the grand scheme of things, does me writing this profile on this actor or does me writing this feature on this new show, does any of that matter with what's going on? Have you struggled with that? I mean, of course, but also... The way I have come to think of it for myself is just that the things that we cover and we write about are so often the things that people turn to both to sort of find a certain amount of solace or comfort away from what's happening in the news, but then also it's what people turn to, and I know this is very true for myself, what you turn to to try to make sense of what's happening in the news. When you like feel so confused or out of sorts, you try to use, you know, art, culture, entertainment as a way to just figure it out for yourself. It's funny, like I, the thing I've been watching recently, Yvonne, is I, I just utterly devoured the the docuseries Pretend It's a City, directed by Martin Scorsese. Of course, I'm going to watch anything mm-hmm. directed by Martin Scorsese about the writer Fran Lebowitz, <laughs> but it also becomes this consideration of New York's like past and present and future and like, what matters, what doesn't matter. That that series did so much for me exactly the moment it came out at a moment when I was feeling down and confused and it really did help pick me up. Has there been anything you've been watching that's that's done that for you? Well, it's interesting because the 40-year-old version was something that really calmed me. Like even the black and white color of it, like it felt calming because I feel like with the news and everything that's going on, it just feels like everything's sort of like in technicolor and it's like, like saturating my brain and to like watch something that wasn't like that, that was like black and white and I could just focus and like calm. It was very nice. But then, you know, like earlier this week, I did the worst thing, which is I watched the entire docuseries The Night Stalker (laughs) about Richard Ramirez, which was like the worst decision I could have made because I have been terrified to go to sleep. And there was the other night where I was up late writing 
and I heard like footsteps in the courtyard of my complex. And I was like, that's weird. It's like 1030 at night. And then someone slowly opened the screen door to like where my unit is. And then someone knocked on my door, Mark. (laughs) And I freaked out. I didn't answer it. And then I just went in my room and like was freaking out the whole night. So don't watch The Night Stalker is all I'm saying. Of course, I am the kind of person I can never think about Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, without also thinking about the Sylvester Stallone film Cobra, which is like sort of like top shelf 80s level Stallone action that has the villain is a like Night Stalker-esque like cult leader and sort of sort of took like the ideas of what the Night Stalker was and sort of like really exploded them and extrapolated them into something bigger. Uh. And so I like for some reason, like the Night Stalker, as scary and as genuine as who he was and what he did was. And I think the series shows some things and talks about some things that a lot of people don't know about Richard Ramirez. There's still something weirdly ridiculous about it because of the whole like satanic panic element of it. So I, I always have like weird and conflicted feelings about like his saga. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I definitely just had to start like downing some HGTV shows to sort of cleanse myself and be like, okay to go to sleep at night. I don't know if Sylvester Stallone has done a movie about flipping houses, but if he has, please let me know and I'll watch that. Uh, but for now, I can't wait to hear uh, who you're speaking with next week. Tell me who you're talking to. Well, next week, I sit down with actress Rachel Brosnahan to talk about her latest film, I'm Your Woman. It's a neo-noir crime drama uh, about a mob wife forced to go on the run after her husband disappears. I've loved the last couple of years playing this confident, fast talking comedian and this was a really exciting and challenging swing in a totally different direction you'll hear that interview with rachel next wednesday the envelope the podcast is hosted by me yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague mark olson our producer is shannon lynn and our executive producer is abby fentress swanson our audio engineer is mike heflin and special thanks to mike for making our theme song if you like the envelope the podcast Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. 